Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Has it been a while since you flipped that thermostat from heat to cool? Turn to the experts at Griffith Energy Services before you do for an $88 AC start and check to make sure your AC is in tip-top shape. Griffith specializes in carrier, but services all brands. Visit GriffithEnergyServices.com today. Your local carrier expert. That's GriffithEnergyServices.com. License number MDHVACR01-2278. Griffith Energy Services. Doggone dependable. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of February 3rd, 2020. On this week's episode, it's the week before pitchers and catchers have to report But word has it that many White Sox pitchers and catchers have already made their way to spring training facilities in Glendale, Arizona. Again, the players share the same level of excitement as fans do for this upcoming 2020 season, which is terrific. And while the moving trucks are making their way from Guaranteed Rate Field to Glendale, We'll discuss what's going on in Major League Baseball, including the trade rumors for both Mookie Betts and Chris Bryant that for sure could impact postseasons for the league. Also, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox at the end of the show. We start this week's show discussing the top prospect lists. All the major publications released them last week, and they all hold a central theme for the Chicago White Sox. Four top 40 prospects, and then nothing else to the top 100. We've gotten to the point in the White Sox construction after which we are expecting wave after wave of talent. Well, that wave after wave has arrived in Chicago. But is there another wave building up behind Luis Robert, Nick Madrigal, Michael Kopech, and even first-round pick from last year, Andrew Vaughn? Well, to help answer that question and more about the White Sox prospects are a couple of White Sox fans from Baseball Prospectus. Joining me now is Associate Editor Colin Whitchurch and Minor League Editor Nick Schaefer. Colin and Nick... 
Thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. Happy to be here. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, ple- pleasure's all mine. So let's start at the very top with Luis Robert. As Baseball perspective, Prospectus has him as the sixth best prospect in all of baseball. Now, he'll drop off this list shortly into the season as he'll be the starting center fielder for the White Sox opening day 2020. But I'll start with you, Nick. Robert had such a monster 2019 season, which came after his 2018 year that we didn't see him hit a home run. Do scouts and analysts at Baseball Prospectus have a better understanding of what Robert's ceiling is, or is that still mainly unknown? Well, I suppose Robert is really interesting in the sense that this last year he broke out and he he had such an amazing year statistically and visually, but because of his pedigree and because of the what we'd heard about him, it was almost more confirmation of what we suspected was in there than revealing something new. I mean, anybody who follows him on Instagram alone can see that he's just a prodigious physical specimen. The guy's huge. He's fast. He's it just pops off the off the screen. So getting statistical production and just health was really important and really exciting. And I know that it may have been disappointing for some White Sox fans to see him at six Um, on the 101. The prospect team and I went back and forth on this a lot. And as we were going through, I had to kind of periodically remind our guys like, hey, you know, this is a five tool elite center fielder who's destroyed triple a, you know, how do we, you know, what, what is the the basis for putting say a double a pitcher ahead of him, for example. And I think, I, I don't think anyone at, on the prospect team would be shocked myself included if Robert wound up being the best player on this list, but there were enough, question marks that won't be resolved until we see him in the majors that our team felt like they put him at six. And I will say, I think, I think it's fair to say that six, the top six on this list kind of represent a tier. I think that there is sort of a drop between him and Kalanick. I think there's a bigger gap between him and Kalanick and say uh, him and Lux at three. Um, So that would be my general overview of where he stands as a, in in the prospect rankings for us. I'm glad you brought that up because that was going to be my follow-up question because the top five for baseball prospectus is Wander Franco, Joe Adele, Gavin Lux, Adley Rushman, and Mackenzie Gore, and Luis Robert. I I agree with you, Nick. That is an elite tier of prospects in Major League Baseball that I don't know what any of these guys don't do well to say, especially as far as like Gore's the only pitcher in the top six, and everyone's been raving about him since the day he's been drafted as far as his skill set and pitch set. But for Robert Collin, going into the 2020 season, again, we're expecting him to be the opening day starter as he signed that new contract with the White Sox. Collin, is there any weaknesses that White Sox fans need to be made aware of? You know, for example, last year, I think it took a lot of White Sox fans surprised that Aloy Jimenez struggled so much against the slider. Is there a specific weakness that Luis Robert has that they should be mindful of? Yeah, I mean, I think it's possible that, you know, and I, 
that Robert uh, doesn't come out and immediately light the world on fire. Um, Jarrett Seidler, um, our senior prospect writer, actually wrote a, a nice post kind of breaking down um, the team's process uh, at deciding number one. And and like Nick said, um, you know, there was kind of a top six tier and, and he mentions kind of Robert's the reason Robert ranks below the other five and, and, you know, he's a potential five tool guy, but the one tool that there are question marks about are his bat to ball skills. Um, and specifically his ability to recognize and lay off good breaking balls. Um, so you mentioned, you know, the trouble with the slider with Aloy. I, I could see a scenario where Robert gets fooled by good off speed stuff at the major league level. Now he seems like a good and smart enough hitter to be able to adjust just like we saw Aloy start to do down the stretch last year. And, you know, there's not really any question that even with Aloy's struggles in his rookie year, there there's not a lot of worry that he's not going to be an above average major league hitter. And we should expect kind of the same thing out of Robert. Robert has five tools. We don't have to question very much his running ability, his fielding ability, his arm, his power is obviously there. And the hit tool will be a little bit more of a development um, and, and, and and maybe take him a little bit more time. But, you know, not everyone gets to the majors and does what Juan Soto did two years ago. So um, even if there are growing pains, uh, I still think there's going to be uh, some long-term benefits. Just for record, for those that are listening, Colin just said that Luis Robert will have a similar season as Juan Soto did. A couple years ago. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'll put my name on that. <laughs> I think just to piggyback off of that really quickly, I, it's it's kind of like when we looked at Jose Abreu's statistics back in Cuba in the sense that those statistics are what it would look like if one of the best hitters in the world were playing in that league. Similarly, what Robert did in Charlotte is what one of the best prospects would do at that level. And it's possible that he's just so gifted physically that he doesn't skip a beat. But there weren't the pitching just isn't good enough in the minors to challenge his to 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 really exploit any potential holes in the hit tool or approach that he's going to have to shore up. And he can totally do it, like Colin said. But anytime you have sort of a, a, a TBD in the profile, even in the slightest bit, that's where you can start to lose. That's where you can start to shade on the tiniest margins between these guys at the tippy top. Yeah, I think I, out of all the games that I saw in person for the White Sox minor leagues last year, I saw Luis Roberts' worst game of the year when he went 0 for 4 for 4 strikeouts. <laughs> and then he just took off from there. That was after he hurt his thumb. So, uh, oh well. Did you but... cause the golden sombrero or did you cause the rebound? That's a great question. Probably the golden sombrero because I interviewed him before the game. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, if I interviewed him after the game, maybe I was the cause for the rebound. But no, I'm probably the cause for the golden sombrero. <laughs> So that's Luis Robert. Let's move over to Nick Madrigal. I am still going to be living on this hill throughout spring training that I do think that Nick Madrigal should be the starting second baseman for the Chicago White Sox in opening day. But Baseball Respectus has Madrigal ranked 13th overall, uh, which is a bit eye-opening compared to other lists. Baseball Prospectus is higher in Madrigal than others. So, Nick, what are the scouting grades that your team has on Madrigal to consider him to be one of the top 15 prospects right now in all of Major League Baseball? Oh, gosh. Um, I'd have to pull up 
to get the exact scouting grades on him, um, you know, to go down the five tools, don't have it exactly in front of me. And there's there'd be some debate depending on the evaluator on some of them, you know, particularly the power tool where you see that going. Some of that ironically kind of depends on the baseball, in my opinion, what's going to be used. But obviously the main attraction here is the hit tool. Uh, he is just has preternatural bat to ball ability. Uh, you look at a guy like Jeff McNeil in his rookie year is somebody who came up and thrived based on just contact ability. And Nick Madrigal's strikeout rate in the minors is a fraction of what Jeff McNeil's was. So that gives you some context. Jeff McNeil's physically very different, uh, you know, bigger, a little bit more physical, but uh, that's the headline here. Madrigal is really, I think he's divisive because he's so unique. Uh, we really haven't seen someone who strikes out this little um, in decades. <laughs> really, he's kind of a throwback player. I don't think there's any question about his glove. I think he's going to be a plus defender at, at second. I think he's ready to do that right away. You know, he didn't play short in college, and some people thought that meant something. The guy who played short in college is Caden Grenier, who's like probably a plus shortstop right now in the majors. So just for context, um, he's a plus runner and so that really leaves you with what does someone who never strikes out look like in the majors in 2020 when power is so important, when there's so much velocity, where there's such such an emphasis on defensive positioning to cut, away, cut down on balls in play being productive for you. And so to me, I wouldn't be shocked if he started posting, you know, if his peak looked like. DJ LeMayhew's seasons in Colorado. Um, and it wouldn't shock me if he was, you know, uh, D Gordon with less speed to be honest, you know, like it, it could be anywhere in there in my view, uh, just in terms of statistical production, but it's, it's really hard to forecast an anomaly. And then Colin, again, I made it known that I think he's the best option for the white Sox to start opening day at second base do you, do you agree with that sentiment that Magical is ready to take on the starting second base role for the White Sox in opening day? I think so, particularly given um, the makeup of the roster as we sit here on February 2nd. Um, you know, I don't necessarily think that he's going to start the year as the second baseman. And I do think that before the Robert extension, you could have made a more logical case for keeping Madrigal down outside of simple service time games than you could with Robert. Mm -hmm. I mean, to be fair, Madrigal only has, you know, a little bit over 300 plate appearances in the upper minors, I believe at double a and triple a combined that, yeah, you know, you could, you could see, uh, see a reason to just say we want him to get more reps, but at the same time, you know, given the the makeup of the White Sox offseason, this is this is now a win now team and a win now team wants to put the best team on the field possible for 162 games. So starting, you know, Leary Garcia or Danny Mendick uh, at second for a month or however long we want to keep Madrigal down doesn't seem like the best option. I think that keeping Madrigal uh, in the lineup from the beginning is, is, is the best way to contend. I just, I don't think it's going to happen. And that's part of what was so frustrating about 
uh, either or both of them not being called up last September uh, because, you know, we saw Eloy adjust as the season went on. We've seen Moncada adjust to, to the majors slowly over time. And it feels like it would have been really beneficial if you actually wanted to contend in 2020 to let these guys get their feet wet in the majors in 2019. No, that's a great point, Nick, especially if you know that you would like to pursue a new contract with Luis Robert in the offseason that, you know, you could you still have that carrot dangling in front of him to sign that, but you still could have brought them both up in September, especially if you knew that 2020 was going to be the year you wanted to transition from rebuilding to contending. Uh, 2009. This rebuild has been a blast <laughs> to talk about. You sound frustrated, Josh. <laughs> so, so many words to talk about. When you're starting to wear down, Josh, you know it's bad. <laughs> uh, September, man. Hopefully September 2020 is a lot more positive to talk about. An- another prospect that I think he's – I'm really bullish on. I think he's going to have a very strong spring training. I think his mindset and physically he is there to contribute with the White Sox right away. And that's starting pitcher Michael Kopech. He's been in the mainstay of the top 40 or so for a few years now, maybe since 2017. Uh, don't fact-check me on that. It just seems like he's been a top 50 prospect for a while now and coming back from Tommy John surgery, we are expecting Kopech to start the season down in AAA to break off some rust and with in-game experience. But Nick, what are you hoping to see from Kopech in 2020 that would give you confidence that he is fully back and he's ready to be handed the ball every fifth day in the White Sox starting rotation? So one of the things that people talk about with Tommy John is sort of an old chestnut is that, Uh, Command can be the last thing to come back, and Command was obviously uh, the weak spot in Kopech's profile. You know, I don't don't think anyone listening would be surprised to hear that certainly pre-injury his stuff uh, looked really elite, and that was – and his build, all that stuff, like that's all – that's all there in spades. I think we had – uh, I think our Steve Guyvars uh, was in Arizona last fall from uh, the BP prospect team. And I think he caught uh, Kopech touching 100, 101 uh, in, in the Arizona Fall League. The, the, you know, quote unquote, nice thing about his recovery is that he got his surgery at the end of, gosh, what year is it now? Uh, 2018. So he got, you know, the timing of it was that he gets this longer recovery time and rehab time. That's all good. More time to get the command back. So just to me, if he can command his stuff, even at a below average level, I think he's a major league starter right now. Um, so that's that's what I'm gonna be watching, uh, and it is the the fastball command first and foremost. So I think he's athletic enough, and the work ethic, all that stuff is there, and it's just a question of that that process because he hadn't mastered that before his injury. So I'm interested to see that. And then Colin, during spring training, if Dylan Cease and Renato Lopez also have command issues and Kopech looks the best out of those three, should Kopech, if the White Sox are truly contending in 2020, be in that starting rotation over Cease or Lopez? 
Well, the thing about Kopech's playing time in in 2020 is, and and this is one thing where in in a in a rare development, I I don't necessarily disagree with uh, with the White Sox front office. Um, they're going to be careful with his innings, which is understandable coming off of Tommy John surgery. And from from what I understand, is that the way they're going to cut back on his innings is instead of you know having to shut him down or monitor his workload in August September, um, instead you know monitor it at the beginning of the year and that might mean starting the year in triple a you know pitchers coming off of tommy john surgery you never know um <clears throat> and it's very possible that he comes out in spring training uh you know looking like the old copac and looking better than cease and looking better than reynaldo but um when it comes to monitoring starters uh workloads i i don't really find a lot of fault in that and i also you know, I think it's a little bit forward thinking for a team that wants to contend to maybe to maybe monitor those at the beginning of the year instead of the end. And it gives Lopez sort of one last if you do it that way, it kind of gives Lopez one more shot to, to, to take another, I don't know, four or five starts and show if he can put it together for a, an extended run before maybe he's the one that you phase out, depending on health of the other guys and uh, performance. of the Yeah. Guys. For sure. Then there's Andrew Vaughn, who ranks 31st in baseball prospectus top 101. Colin, the White Sox signed Jose Abreu to a three-year deal, and they also signed Edwin Encarnacion this offseason to a one-year deal, but there is a club option for 2021. I feel that club option for Encarnacion is an insurance policy just in case if Andrew Vaughn doesn't have a successful 2020 campaign. What do you need to see from Vaughn, Colin, down in Birmingham and possibly Charlotte this year to give you enough confidence to pencil Vaughn in to the White Sox 2021 plans? To put it simply, I need to see him hit and I need to see him hit a lot. When it comes to prospects like Vaughn, who are so dependent on their hit tool and on their power, that's pretty much what you need to see. You know pretty much right off the bat that Vaughn isn't going to offer much defensively. You know, he's going to be a first baseman or a DH. There's nothing beyond that. And he's not going to offer much, if anything, on the base paths. So the quickest path to the majors for a player like Vaughn and the quickest way to to curb any worries is to hit the crap out of the ball. So, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to watch him progress. You know, if, if, uh, if he's good and Encarnacion's good enough to pick up his option and Abreu continues being good, that's a good problem to have. You know, uh, if, if, if the contending teams in, uh, the playoffs the last couple of years have taught us anything, it's the depth is, uh, de- depth is, is, as important nowadays in the majors as it's been in a long time. So I want to see him do well and, and, you know, fight for a 2021 roster spot, maybe a September call up or something like that. Um, but that's, that's, it's, it's about as simple as can be. We need it to see him hit for power. We need to see him hit for average. And, and that's the quickest path to playing time for him. And then Nick last year we saw in Birmingham, I felt Birmingham was played on planet Earth and Charlotte was played on the moon uh, <laughs> on the type of baseball that was played and the power numbers, especially in the International League, but especially in Charlotte. Just go ahead and take a look at Zach Collins' splits when he was playing games in Charlotte and playing games on the road. It's like a 300, 400-point slugging difference between home and away, just as an example of what was going on in Charlotte last year, especially with the super bouncy ball. 
how are we going to interpret Vaughn's production this season between Birmingham and Charlotte? Is Birmingham still the toughest affiliate for White Sox hitters to produce? And if he does excel in Birmingham, what could we possibly expect from him in AAA? So I'd have to go back and check some of the low minors to to 100% accurately answer your question. Obviously, Birmingham versus Charlotte is really stark. Uh, One player that I like to use as an example for that, even for my own education, was Gavin Sheets, where his last year his top line numbers in Birmingham were pretty unremarkable, particularly for a first baseman. But if you look at our DRC Plus statistic, which takes in a lot more context, DRC Plus said he had a pretty good year. He was actually an above average hitter. Uh, And that was that made me sort of give Sheets a a second look. Uh, I think that Vaughn so Vaughn to me is kind of similar to Madrigal, which is sounds odd, but in the sense that uh, I think he's a really safe prospect. I think I think he's almost certainly a major leaguer. And then he also has this potential upside, which is also really tantalizing, where, you know, like I said, maybe those DJ LeMahieu Colorado seasons, which were really, really good for, for Madrigal, that might be what it looks like. Uh, I think for Vaughn, uh, he, as, as our former minor league editor and now managing editor, uh, Craig Goldstein said to me, we were talking before the draft about, and I was talking about who I might want the White Sox to target. He said, I don't know, man, Vaughn's bat is just wild. Uh, you look at the plate discipline, uh, the, the contact ability. It, I, I think it is kind of hit over power for now. He could grow into more power too. And there's still plenty of power in there already. So, you know, you could be looking at, you know, the type of player who, you know, like maybe a year like Josh Bell had last year, and that'd be a great outcome. And then there's this potential for him being one of those really elite bats, even with his position taken into account. And I don't want to comp him to Hall of Famers. Uh, and you were talking about like really high percentile outcomes. But like based on what he did in college and his draft pedigree, there's like a universe where Andrew Vaughn like puts up, I don't know, Edgar Martinez style seasons. Like that's not it's that sort of contact and zone control potentially. So for him in Birmingham, I think maybe if you're trying to, I I think, I mean, I'm the low man on Collins and I have been for a long time. I I think maybe you look at what Luis Robert did uh, because he went across three levels last year where you look at uh, Birmingham was an 880 OPS, whereas Charlotte and high A, it was, you know, well above 900. I mean, high A, it was, well over a thousand. But uh, I think that illustrates the gap between the levels. I mean, you have the same player one month to another gain about a hundred points of OPS. So just calibrate a little bit, maybe give them a little bonus from what you see in Birmingham statistically is what hey, I would if say. You're, if you're going to say that I comped Luis Robert to Juan Soto, you need to say that Nick comped Andrew Vaughn to Edgar Martinez. Do it. All right, there you go. <laughs> so Andrew Vaughn is Edgar Martinez and Luis Robert is Juan Soto. Not as high as Eloy Jimenez calling Luis Robert the next Mike Trout, but I'll take it still, Colin. (laughs) I love watching Juan Soto play. We did get some great questions from our Patreon supporters. As always, guys, thank you so much for your support. The first question we have from our Patreon mailbag is for you, Nick, and it comes from Ed Casey. Ed is asking, outside of the White Sox, four top four prospects that were ranked in the top 101, 
Do the White Sox currently have anyone in their system that could leap into the top 101 at the next re-rank with a strong season? Uh, Yeah, so I think, you know, outside of the top four guys who we had there now, it was obviously a down year for the White Sox system, both through injury and performance. I think, I mean, the the, the cheap answer is to just say the next guy up, uh, Jonathan Stever, was the closest guy to the one-on-one. We talked about him, and you know, he he wasn't really likely to get on the one-on-one, but his name was on our long list. So, But the thing is, he kind of already had his breakout this year. I would view next year as sort of more of a consolidation year, and I would caution people to remember that you know this time last year, or maybe a little bit before, uh, middle of last year, uh, the year the year previously, so what I'm trying to say, you know, you had guys like, Dane Dunning, who looked like he was approaching. And then you had sort of Stever-like jumps from guys like um, Lambert. And uh, there were other players that we were excited about as they were approaching the majors. And they, a lot of them hit a wall at AAA. Uh, a lot of them uh, hit injury. Some of them hit both. So, you know, f- the pop-up guys can also regress pretty quickly, too. So as a word of caution, I think, um, you know, for some of these guys as well, it's it's a bit of a tough needle to thread because if, say, Basabe does cash in his potential finally and plays really well, he's high enough up in the minors that theoretically he could play himself off a list. There's like a, you know, for eligibility reasons. But I think I'll go with, so, but I think I'll go with Basabe. I think he's somebody we've liked in the past. Uh, he's had, Injury slowdowns. He's had the Birmingham is like a, not a great place to hit. So long story short, I say I think he's a candidate on top of some of the arms who who got who got injured. Um, and I think there's another question later that I might start encroaching on. So I'll I'll stop there. <laughs> no problem. Uh, the next question I have comes from Mark Sambor and Colin. I'll have you take this one on first because uh, I've got a much different opinion than Baseball America does on their story. But Mark's asking, during SoxFest, Rick Hahn said Baseball America posted a story where White Sox draft picks during the past decade finished second in Major League Baseball in total war across all players drafted. Is this true? And if so, why hasn't this translated to Major League success? (laughs) Um, well, first of all, I don't know if it's true. You know, I'll trust Baseball America. They're, uh, you know, they're a great outlet. Um, I don't know, um, you know, the methodology behind it. I didn't, I didn't read that, that particular article. Um, I will say, you know, drafting is really hard. The White Sox did have a couple of hits this decade, even if they didn't all, um, you know, wind up with the org. Um, obviously you point to Chris Sale, um, you point to Marcus Simeon, who was a 2011 draft pick, I believe. Um, there's going to be some high war totals because of that. Um, you know, the White Sox obviously didn't put it all together at the major league level for for whatever reason. So, um, you know, I, I, again, I, I don't entirely know the methodology behind uh, behind how they put together that list or, or some names that maybe we're not thinking of. But when you're just adding up uh, – the war of draft classes throughout a decade. It's not necessarily, um, it's more, it's more, uh, 
I, I'd say it's more interesting than illustrative of, of the organization as a whole. Um, so I don't think necessarily when you look at a list like that, you say, well, they had this high of a total. So why were they bad for the entire decade? I just don't think there's a necessarily a correlation there. Um, so yeah, that's probably not necessarily the answer that your uh, your Patreon supporter was looking for. But I, I just I, I think it's it's an interesting list, but it's not necessarily something that that explains uh, why they haven't been good for the last decade. I mean, this may come as a shocker, but I kind of view this as less of um, you know low key praise for the team is kind of kind of damning because yeah, like <laughs> Colin pointed out, like ninety percent of this is coming from Chris Sale, who depending on which war you use uh by baseball references he had the most in the 2010 draft class which obviously starts the decade and he's almost 10 ahead of manny machado who's in second which is kind of wild but like yeah you drafted like a hall of famer <laughs> at the beginning of the decade with that one pick and that's amazing like that was a great pick they did a great job developing him all that stuff um but you know anybody who watched the white Sox in this decade um the non-Chris Sale stuff was less good. So I think that goes a really long way to explaining that statistic if it's accurate. Right, and this is why I really disagree with the premise of the Baseball America post is that all you have to do is just look at the four first-round picks from 2015, 2016, and 2017. Theoretically, if those panned out, we would see those guys part of the 2020 White Sox roster or part of Baseball Prospectus Top 101 and we don't see those guys. <laughs> and I know that there's some people that are trying to sell folks on Zach Birdie. You will not hear that on this show because until Zach Birdie proves that he can throw a baseball without getting injured, uh, I just don't think he's very reliable. Uh, but, yeah, I think, you know, when you got four first-round picks in, in three straight years and you're probably going to get nothing out of those four first-round picks – that really does not help with roster construction. Well, sure, but if you go back to the beginning of the decade, I mean, they hit on guys like Keenan Walker, Courtney Hawkins, Keon Barnum. I mean, those guys, those guys were great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's, I, I see where Baseball America is trying to look at the entire draft class, but if you're going to spend most of your time and money on that first round pick, the White Sox have not had a lot of success. In this decade, except for, I would say, in the later part where they figured it out with Nick Magical and Andrew Vaughn. So the White Sox started the decade very well with Chris Sale, and they'll end the first round in this decade, I think, well as well with Nick Magical and Andrew Vaughn. But right in between, there's Tim Anderson and then nothing. And that's kind of why the White Sox had to rebuild. So lack of first round success. The last question we have from our Patreon mailbag is for both of you. It's from Doug. Uh, and, Nick, we'll start with you. Doug's asking, which prospect do you think will have a breakout year for the White Sox and why? Yeah, so this was kind of the question I wanted to uh, keep separate as best I can. Um, and it's and maybe this is the obnoxious lawyer in me, but I, I, I do want to I do wonder about the parameters of the question, because if it's sort of a minor league breakout season, uh, statistically, just great performance. You know, I, I I almost joked about this on Twitter. A guy like Yolbert Sanchez, who the White Sox paid a big IFA bonus to, who was an older Cuban professional player who's a very good defensive middle infielder with good bat-to-ball skills and not much else, 
who's going to be 23 and probably an A ball next year. Like, yeah, I would expect him to hit above 300 and defend the middle infield and look great. My, I'm not really going to be interested in what Yulbert Sanchez can do until he gets to Birmingham at least. Uh, so yeah, like Yulbert should crush next year. And uh, there are guys like, you know, like I said, Stever, I think he kind of already had his breakout and it's sort of polishing at this point and sustaining. Um, does it count if someone like Dane Dunning comes back from injury and picks up where he left off? Is that a breakout? I'm not sure. So um, I think the most likely stock up is from a really risky portfolio uh, uh, profile, which is the two high school guys that the White Sox took high in the draft, Dalquist and Thompson, purely because people, not just the White Sox, people really liked the 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 raw material there and if you know every year you get guys who you know high profile prep guys who show up in pro ball and thrive and you know respond really well to pro coaching and a pro you know grow you know from age 18 to 19 like there's a lot of physical development so those two guys have a have a really good chance of going from mystery box to oh hey this guy's really interesting and is really performing well in rookie ball maybe so i think that's an area to watch um and you know i still i'm not all the way out on basabe is is a guy I like and Bernardo Flores is someone I love uh, and always have. So I think he could be a useful utility arm as soon as 2020. I don't know if that counts as a as a breakout year. But those are some guys I would flag as liking maybe better than it would look like just going in our ordinal rankings. How about you, Colin? Which White Sox prospect do you think is poised to have a breakout year? I was worried Nick was going to take the the two prep arms because that's definitely uh, one and two on my list. You know, they're, they're both conservatively probably four years away from the majors. So they're guys who, if they pop, they're going to stick around on, on top prospect list for a while. Obviously, like Nick said, super risky profiles. Um, there are a couple other uh, options I have here. I was, I was pleasantly surprised to see um, Glenn and Sosa appear in our top 10 at number 10. Um, he's someone who's going to be 20 this year and you could see a, a big breakout from, I don't know if his ceiling is incredibly high, but he has the makings of a, you know, a decent all around middle infielder. Um, <clears throat> if we dig down a little bit deeper, I know there were some iterations of our list. So, so every, every, uh, top 10 list, uh, on our site went 20 deep and then included a, a low minors sleeper. Um, which is kind of what this question is asking to a certain extent. And there were iterations of this list before it went to publication that actually put James Beard in the top 20 and then had uh, Benjamin Bailey uh, as the low minor sleeper. Now, Beard, I know people are pretty familiar with as someone just from the recent 2020 draft class uh, fourth round pick who is really, really fast. Um, I could see him uh, kind of taking a step this year and the next couple of years, also, you know, a couple of years away from the majors. And then Bailey, I feel like is a little bit more of an unknown as an 18 year old out of uh, Panama, who the White Sox just signed uh, this past April. Um, 
performed well in the DSL for whatever that means. You know, you, you hear some, he has some helium uh, in scouting circles. So someone whose name uh, is probably going to become a lot more familiar to White Sox fans in coming years. Obviously, as an 18 year old who's only played in the DSL, um, he could very easily disappear. But uh, just just a, a very low minors name to to kind of keep your eye on uh, as he progresses through the system. Yeah, I could also I could also see like um, you know DJ Gladney is another one of those sort of way away bats who could who could be interesting. And from maybe from a lower ceiling angle, some guys who could break out if it counts. I really like Tyler Johnson. Uh, he's a relief prospect. Um, I could see him moving really quickly uh, if he can stay healthy. And um, Cade McClure going deeper down is is sort of a. I, I've always found him kind of interesting. He's six seven. He has. Uh, good control. Uh, he had a knee problem, I think, in 2018 that slowed him down. But I would, it wouldn't shock me if he got got to the majors at some point as well. I'm glad you both mentioned Gladney and Bailey because they're on my list as guys that I'm most intrigued about because they are young and we don't know a lot about them because they just played rookie ball or in the DSL. Uh, but if they get to Canapolis, those are the guys I'm going to be paying attention to as far as getting an opportunity to watch the streams or checking box scores and reading up what other people have to say uh, to see if they can develop because I just find them to be pretty unique as far as skill sets for the White Sox. And, boy, the positions that they play, the White Sox definitely need some more depth in the minor leagues. Now, finally, to wrap this segment up, I get a sense that this farm system today is above average. But later this year, when Robert Kopech and Madrigal pot- <laughs> graduate, oh, <God. laughs> uh, it will be a bottom 10, if not bottom 5, farm system again, uh, just like it was before the rebuild began. Uh, and depending on – that does depend on who they get in this year's upcoming draft, which is going to be a very strong draft class for all of Major League Baseball as the White Sox select 11th overall. But again, that's how I feel about the White Sox farm system. Nick, what are your thoughts about the farm system as a whole and what the near future looks like? Man, you know, I didn't want to be right about this. This is something I've been saying since 2016, which is that if you can't draft and develop effectively, that you really need to be spending a ton to cover up for it. And obviously, you know, you've got a couple top five draft picks in uh, Madrigal and Vaughn. You have the guys you've traded for. You had the one huge IFA uh, that you signed. And it really falls off a cliff after that. And even some of the guys they traded for, you know, Basabe, Rutherford, these are people who've taken a step backwards since they got to the organization for a variety of reasons. So, you know, is there room for a lot of these Tommy John pitchers to come back and look a lot stronger and bolster the system. Absolutely. You know, Lambert made some really cool changes. Um, we talked about there's there's a lot more teenagers in the system, I think, than there used to be that I, that I would consider interesting and potential impact players or major league regulars uh, if everything goes well. And, I, you know, I'm willing to give the benefit of the doubt to the extent that, you know, they've reshuffled their coaching staff. It looks like they're trying new things. They've promoted some new guys who have some new ideas about how to do development. So that's all... There's potential, but at the current trajectory, if you take, you know, I don't love Collins, but he's seventh on the list too. I mean, if you take those top three guys off in Collins, I mean, that's 
that's a lot out of the system. And it's good if your system is empty because you've graduated quality major leaguers. Don't get me wrong. But if this is supposed to be this sustainable pipeline of talent, I mean, it's really hard to do that when you whiff on all those draft picks. Like like you said, Josh, I mean, we haven't even mentioned Carson Fulmer. He was taken eighth overall in 2015, right before you start the rebuild. I mean, that's brutal. Um, it's it's really hard to give them the benefit of the doubt given their track record and just given how everything looks right now. So um, you really need sort of either surprises or some really high out high percentile outcomes and some of these lower guys lower down the list for this system to keep supplementing in a meaningful way what's present on the major league roster. I mean, it's, it's, you know, like I like Stever a lot. He had a fantastic year. There's a lot to like here, but at the same time, like I said, he's a pop-up guy to an extent and we saw what happened to this wave of tier two guys in the system last year. They all got hurt. They were all ineffective or both. And I'm not trying to be a downer, but like that, that could easily happen to Steve or two. And I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> I think a, uh, I think a good comparison of kind of a, a glass half full um, outcome for the farm is, kind of what you've seen in Milwaukee. Um, you know, the if, if you look at the, uh, you know, we'll be coming out with our uh, org rankings in a little bit. Spoiler alert, the Brewers are number 30 in farm system rankings uh, this year. Um, and that's because they used their farm to make their major league club better, whether it was through trades or through graduations. And, you know, the team made a couple playoff appearances in a, in a row. They were a step away from the world series, obviously not winning a world series is a disappointment. Their window's not necessarily closed. And of course they spent this entire offseason not spending money, which I'm sure is frustrating to a lot of Brewers fans, but it's, you know, like Nick said, it's a lot more palatable if your farm system is uh, goes in the garbage if it means that your major league team is good. I don't know if there's sustainability there unless um, some of the changes they've made in the org, um, scouting and development uh, pan out. But, um, you know, I think that the the rebuild and the kind of top level prospects that they had graduating and starting to produce at the major level is a great thing. Now it's just going to be important that they start to kind of backfill it, uh, you know, from within, whether it be via the draft or IFAs or just developing guys, uh, in the system. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I can't, I, I like the, uh, the Brewers comparison too, because the White Sox do have a lot of pitchers where, if they don't hit in the rotation, they do profile potentially as impact relievers. And if you have a lot of those guys, you can sign the Gio Gonzalez's of the world and fill out your rotation and just yeah. have them go five and dive and then spam insane relievers. That's what the Brewers did uh, very effectively for a couple of seasons. You know, a guy like Lopez, maybe that's what we see him become. Um, and, you know, the White Sox did uh, get um, Menachino from the Dodgers system and you know, the Dodgers have had a ton of success recently taking non-prospects and turning them into major league contributors and turning decent prospects into impact players. And maybe Makino can steal some of uh, that secret sauce and uh, pour it all over Jake Berger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just hope Jake Berger can walk normally. We'll see yeah, I chased play. the pawn. I yeah. chased the pawn. It wasn't uh, not his problem. <laughs> it's all right. It's all right. I, uh, 
I was ignoring that. Anyways, uh, <laughs> Colin, I know you are a betting man. So are you taking the over or under 84 and a half wins for the White Sox in 2020? Oh, man. You know, you didn't prep us with this question, Josh. <laughs> I want to put you on the spot. Um, I actually I, w- I will be. Uh, I actually have an article coming out um, toward the end of this week uh, where uh, our, our Pico is being released Tuesday. So there's a there's a promo. I, I got my baseball perspectives promo out of the way. Uh, check the site on Tuesday. Pakota is going to be released. You can see all of the projections for White Sox hitters, prospects, et cetera. I will be doing my own piece for uh, for Pakota week on the differences between um, the win total projections and what Vegas says. I have not actually seen what Pakota says about the White Sox win total yet. I'm waiting on, on that, so I haven't actually started the article. Um, so that was my long-winded way of trying to come up with an answer, and I will say optimistically the over slightly, um, maybe uh, yeah. in the 85-86 win range. I don't know. Maybe I'm drinking the drinking the Kool-Aid, getting a little excited for baseball season, but I'll be. Uh, I, I, I say they get a little bit over that. I, I'm with you. I don't make my bets until all the projection systems come out and then take a look at compared to Vegas. The only bet I've made so far is the over for Arizona at 83 and a half. Oh, yeah. Wins. Love that. Yeah. As soon as they were, when the rumors came out about Starlin Marte, I'm like, I need to put $10 on the Diamondbacks right now because this is probably going to increase. Yeah. But that's the only futures bet I've made so far, and I'm waiting for all the projection systems to come out. Uh, before doing so, I'm still a little sad the Astros are not on the board right now uh, to put bets on. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, think the, there's the Diamondbacks. Also, I don't know what the Reds Vegas total is, but I would uh, I might throw some money on that as well. I think there's a word of caution too in terms of if you're looking at the projections for team wide stuff. Um, is we we like to say at BP that team projections are really playing time projections, and every year we spend a lot of time trying to. You know, when we put our depth chart projections up, we have we talk to as many people as we can and really fine tune and try to tinker with plate appearance projections at each spot in the lineup where it's saying, you know, okay, how many games you can say you like Nick Madrigal and Pakota says he's a a three win player in his rookie year or whatever. Potentially, I I haven't seen it either. But like how many games is he actually going to play? And that goes for the whole roster. So that makes it even more complicated. so, you know, if you're putting your $10 on some of these things, you know, hypothetically for promotional purposes for entertainment value only, um, you know, just keep that in mind. <laughs> He's such a lawyer, Colin. I mean, come on. He really is. <laughs> <laughs> oh. That said, you know, the Twins are going to regress. They're garbage. Uh, <laughs> the rest of the division's terrible. White Sox are winning 95. Lindor. They're winning 95 games. <laughs> wow. This is the Nick. How many podcasts have we recorded together? And this is the most optimistic I've ever heard you about the White Sox. I mean, this makes more sense than pretty much anything they've done in a long time. (laughs) (laughs) Probably since I was in undergrad. (laughs) Oh, my God. Well, you could follow Colin and Nick on Twitter. Colin is at Colin Whitchurch and Nick is at Nick underscore BPSS. You could describe to Baseball Prospectus as both do excellent work for the site at BaseballPerspectus.com, and the 2020 Baseball Prospectus Annual, which is always a very popular book yeah. at this time of year, uh, is out. Both Colin and Nick are featured in the book, which is exciting. And you could buy the book on BaseballPerspectus.com or Amazon.com. And Colin and Nick, 
thank you guys so much for taking the time on coming on the Sox Machine podcast. Thanks for having us, Josh. Appreciate it. Super fun. Thanks, Josh. Coming up after the break, Jim Margulis joins me as we share our thoughts about the Mookie Betts trade speculation and answer your guys' questions in P.O. Sox. After talking about the Chicago White Sox prospects, which you could see them in action on the backfields at spring training, and how exciting this offseason has been with the players already arriving to Glendale, you might be thinking or already planning about heading to spring training to see the White Sox in action. And why wouldn't you? Arizona is always a great time. And if you're thinking about going, make sure your first stop is visit Arizona.com slash spring training. There you will learn about why Arizona is a one-of-a-kind spring training experience with all 10 stadiums within 50 miles of Phoenix. Check out amazing restaurants and bars nearby in each city, including crap breweries like Four Peaks, Angel's Trumpet Ale House, and Goldwater Brewing Company. Don't forget, there's more to Arizona than just watching baseball. Explore Arizona's incredible landscapes and thrilling outdoor adventures. Check off must-see destinations like the Grand Canyon and Monument Valley. Arizona is also a fantastic destination to bring the family along. If you're thinking about going while your kids have spring break, Arizona has family-friendly resorts and hotels offering plenty of fun from water parks, horseback rides, and wildlife parks that the kids will enjoy. No better time to check out the new White Sox players than this spring, and the best place to start your spring training adventure is visit Arizona.com slash spring training. Again, that's visit Arizona.com slash spring training. Now joining me on the show to discuss a little White Sox news and happenings around Major League Baseball, it's the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. Dylan Covey has found a new home. Yeah, and it's with the team that always gives one pause whenever they uh, pick up somebody who the White Sox weren't able to completely use optimally. They did it last year with uh, it was Tampa Bay Rays. They did it last year with Avi Garcia. Um, you know, after a bunch of ups and downs, the White Sox mostly downs, um, some loud ups, but mostly downs. Uh, he went to the Rays, and the Rays got what uh, you know every team should want to get from Avi, which is 120 games of uh, above average production and right and, and not terrible defense in right field. And he delivered that, uh, the White Sox were always trying to get 150 games, uh, out of him against, uh, every pitcher in the middle of the lineup. And that was just too much stress on him. And now, uh, you know, when, when he goes to a team that doesn't ask so much of him, he does better. And I think with Covey, you know, we talked about him way too much I think, over the last three years because he was always needed uh, and and somebody of his caliber is always needed, which is one of the various pain points on the roster over the last three years. But, you know, we, we talked about him and said like, uh, you know, ideally he'd be somebody who is not high leverage and is not somebody who has to face a, rot- uh, a lineup more than once. And so, you know, how about an opener? You know, give him a few shots at an opener and see if that's the best way to use him. Uh, the White Sox really didn't uh, go into the opener until very late in the season, and they only used Carson Fulmer, who was a disaster. But with uh, Covey, it's like that might be the way to use him, and he's going to the organization that uh, you know, basically maybe didn't invent the opener, but uh, has really embraced it more than any other team and uses it very effectively to get the most out of a pitching staff that's underpaid compared to the rest of the division. So uh, if it's not going to work there, it's not going to work anywhere for him. So good for Covey, and I'll be watching it just to see if uh, 
Yeah, I guess the good news is the White Sox now have six starters, and uh, somebody like Covey would not be needed, uh, knock on wood. Uh, and if he is, you know, if, if the White Sox are into their seventh starter by like May, like they were last year, it's going to be bad. But um, I think for the White Sox looking at it, it still makes some sense to look at Covey just to see like, one, is he, you know, if they use him as an opener, does that work there? And two, you know, if the White Sox do have a pitching emergency later on down the line in a year where they're competing, uh, it would have been nice to see what they uh, or I hope they you know, don't completely ignore the opener in case they have to use it as a tactic. And maybe Covey will, you know, if somehow he achieves that dream I always had for him, he will uh, uh, kind of serve as a reminder that uh, developing guys for even limited roles is important. What would it say about the White Sox development staff? If that does come to fruition, Jim, and the Rays can make Covey useful, uh, you know, just uh, that they lack imagination, and that uh, you know they just for whatever reason, especially in the last couple of years where they had these really sketchy pitching staffs, and and really yeah, had to go to the Ross Detweilers of the world, pick them out of the independent leagues in order to field a rotation, uh, that they never went to the opener and never tried to pursue alternative uh, modes of finding innings. Uh, you know, it's just, I think that's my biggest disappointment of the rebuild years is that they didn't really use it as a lab. They didn't uh, try the opener. They didn't, um, you know, I guess like move a guy like Yohan Moncada around to different positions when he wasn't that great at second base. He's good at third base and it's fine that he's a good third baseman. But I'm thinking like with the Cubs with Chris Bryant, you know, moving him to left field and right field, even though that he was fine at third base and they didn't need him to play anywhere else but third base. But it was just because they could and it might provide value later on down the line. They were very uh, reluctant to pursue any of those. And so they enter, you know, this this uh, contending window. And I hope it's more than a window. I hope it's just a contending mode uh, as a team that, you know, has strengths and has guys of positions, but uh, didn't really make the most out of the years where they weren't expecting to win and, and you know, could have experimented more and, and lost games uh, just because they were trying to be something different. Well, other than Dylan Covey, the biggest news for the White Sox this past week is that they packed up the moving truck and they are now officially headed to Glendale, Arizona for spring training. So in future episodes of the podcast, we will be getting our season preview by position by position episodes and bring back other editors from Sox Machine like Patrick Nolan, Greg Nix, Ted Mulvey to help out. And we'll have other guests as well giving their thoughts about the White Sox position battles that are heading into spring training. So you can look forward to those season preview position episodes in the upcoming weeks. But other than the White Sox moving and Dylan Covey finding a new home. There was a ticketing scandal. Oh my gosh, I forgot about the ticketing scandal. You know, this is this is how I feel about this. Okay, so it's two old guys that are 55 and I think 60 years old that worked within the White Sox helping out. Uh, Bruce Lee, uh, who was the guy that was actually selling tickets exclusively on StubHub. So if you were buying tickets on StubHub to White Sox games between, what was it, 2016 to 2019, uh, you may have bought some tickets for Mike Lee because he sold <laughs> way more tickets than anybody else on StubHub. Yeah, probably if they were between the dugouts. Exactly. Seems. Yeah. So if you were buying good seats behind home plate, uh, you probably bought it from Mike Lee, uh, sorry, Bruce Lee, and Bruce Lee got those tickets from two White Sox employees, and it's fraudulent charges up to like a million dollars in sales. I'm just impressed somebody made that much money 
selling White Sox tickets uh, during those seasons. And in my opinion, they should be promoted, not prosecuted. Well, it, it, the fascinating thing was just how they uh, the Sun-Times story that went into how they discovered and said that he uh, he sold 11,000 tickets on StubHub during 2018 season. And the next highest individual seller on StubHub sold 129. Yeah, I, I think even the 129 guy should be looked at as well. Who sells 129 tickets during a 100 loss season? But yeah, I mean, 11,000 is just ridiculous. Yeah, I wonder, you know, if it's just something that, that you know, you didn't give thought to or thought like you didn't have con- I didn't have context for like how much a high seller sells on StubHub over the course of a season. But I would imagine like once you get over a thousand, you might wonder if you have any company or if it starts to look suspicious that way. Yeah. Well, lesson learned, right? You got to, you got to space them out a little bit more, but he made his money. Flew too close to the sun. Yeah, flew too close to the sun. He's going to go to jail. There will be a fine. And yeah, we'll see how the rest of his life works out. But again, I mean, Maybe the White Sox should give him a job to help with online ticket sales. That's all I'm saying. If he's that successful selling that many tickets, even though he got them for free, so it's like pure profit, but the fact that he made that much money off the White Sox during terrible seasons, maybe he just has a way of, you know, he's got that skill set, Jim. He's really good at selling tickets online, and I think every baseball team could use that type of person within their sales staff. That's all I'm saying, Jim. Yeah, maybe it's be like community service after getting out. Yeah, and I wonder how much StubHub got. Because StubHub takes a, they take a cut for every ticket sale. So are the White Sox suing StubHub? I don't know. That's a good question. We'll see. Maybe it's not even worth the time and the effort to go into court between the two. But yeah, so Jim is right. The White Sox, two stories. Dylan Covey found a new home and... (laughs) Some people are going to jail for selling White Sox tickets. Uh, but other than those two stories, uh, you know, in Major League Baseball, there are some juicy rumors that are going on. And we had a couple of Chris Bryant questions in P.O. Sox. So we'll address Chris Bryant later in the show. But, Jim, the Mookie Betts trade rumors have existed all offseason when the brass, front office brass for the Boston Red Sox, made it known that they would like to not pay the luxury tax in 2020. And it seems at the moment a deal could be possible before opening day with the Red Sox and either the Los Angeles Dodgers or the San Diego Padres. They are the two favorites right now to land Mookie Betts. Are you surprised that the Betts rumors have resurfaced again shortly after Starling Marte was traded to Arizona? Yeah, the timing might be yeah more than a coincidence. Um, yeah, I guess... I'm surprised. I'm still surprised that the Red Sox want to trade him like that. You know, they still project well as a team. Uh, you know, they have some issues to iron out right now with the investigation and Alex Cora uh, being let go. And just there, there might be some, you know, greater organizational mess. There's uh, you know, the, the pitching staff has some question marks with their high paid veteran lefties, you know, Chris, uh, Chris Sale and uh, David Price. So it's not like the sturdiest of 90 win projection teams, but you know, they still project well. And as a team, you know, as, as a, as a fan and a writer and podcaster of a team that uh, has not had a winning season in seven years and has not made the uh, postseason 2008, it's weird to see like just uh, teams like the Red Sox and also like the Indians who have not really done anything this winter, just kind of uh, more or less piss away a chance. It's, you know, 
having a 90 win projection and, and perhaps doing more with that. So I guess that's the biggest surprise to me at all is that like a team of that stature. It's like one thing with the Indians who uh, have never spent and aren't, aren't considering spending anytime soon with uh, Francisco Lindor. You know, it's not necessarily surprising. It's sad, um, but not surprising. But with the Red Sox, you know, having the pockets they do and trying to dodge luxury tax for such a middling amount when – you know, bets will be off the payroll next year if they don't re-sign him, and they might have a chance to do it, you know, uh, get under the luxury tax next year and have a chance to compete with him while he's here. Just strikes me as weird. It doesn't strike me as a surprise that the Dodgers are in because they have resources and they really haven't added elsewhere this winter, so they're they're loaded for him. Uh, and the Padres are always uh, kind of hanging around these these uh, th- this caliber of player, so that doesn't surprise me. It's more a matter of who's trading him rather than who's seeking him. Yeah, because even the Zips projections that our good friend Dan Saborski released for the Boston Red Sox. I mean, Boston right now should be a wild card pick if you're making your predictions for the upcoming season. And maybe they could still challenge Tampa and New York in the American League East if Chris Sale is fully healthy and they have better injury luck with the starting pitching staff than they did last season. Obviously, if that isn't true, then they are probably one of the many teams competing for the fifth wildcard spot or the fifth playoff spot, second wildcard spot in, in the upcoming season. And maybe that's just not enticing enough for the Red Sox ownership to surpass the luxury tax. Like they don't want to pay luxury tax for a team that is going to be on the outside of trying to make it to the postseason rather than being a favorite in the American League East. But I'm with you. It is weird that any team is even contemplating trading a player on the caliber of Mookie Betts. But just in the last couple of weeks, we've heard rumors. Again, we'll talk about Chris Bryant later in the show. But even the Rockies have entertained the idea of trading Nolan Arenado after signing him to his mega deal last year. Uh, I don't understand the Rockies at all. And the fact that Rockies ownership this past week during their fan fest said that the Rockies are going to win 94 plus games in 2020. I think that's delusional. Um, but yeah, the Dodgers, again, we've talked about this in the last couple of years, especially during our postseason episodes. The Dodgers are still chasing that World Series that they haven't had since the late 80s. And that's right. Some of you are listening to this right now. In your lifetime, the Los Angeles Dodgers haven't won a World Series. Uh, so they're still chasing that. So it does make a lot of sense to me that the Dodgers would be the team to pull off a deal and get Mookie Betts. And if that's the case... Go over on the win total for the Dodgers because right now Vegas has them at 98 and a half. And if they add Mookie Betts to that lineup, Jim, I mean, that team is just stupid, stupid, ridiculous that the Dodgers get Mookie Betts. Yeah. And uh, normally I would be, uh, yeah, I, I guess the natural sports fan instinct is to root against the team that's that loaded, but. I've always kind of liked the Dodgers the way they've, especially as teams have, uh, you know, taken these austerity models and and like you know, whether it's re, you know, teams that are tanking like the uh, White Sox did and the Cubs and the Astros and you know, Phillies and Bra- you know, all these teams that are intentionally lost and you have teams like the Indians and Red Sox that are pulling away because they've spent too, you know, they they think they've spent too much for too long. To have a team like the Dodgers that just kind of goes after it year after year and just loads up and uh, amasses unnecessary depth or depth that you know ends up proving necessary because of injuries. Like you know, oftentimes they uh, you know looks like they have too many players. And then time August rolls around or the postseason, they have all the guys they need and and no more than that. 
uh, I admire the way they go about doing it. So if they got it, I'd kind of, I would applaud it, and I'd be. Uh, I guess part of me would be want them to win a World Series just so they wouldn't. They maybe pull back a little bit, and uh, as the White Sox are looking to, you know, perhaps break in or, or or dip their toes into the the high the premium end of the free agent market, I wouldn't mind seeing the. Dodgers lose a little bit of their incentive, but uh, so maybe that's why I'm rooting for them more than uh, I normally would. If the Red Sox do move bets either to the Dodgers or Padres or to any other team, maybe specifically if bets moves over to the National League, does that greatly improve or does that have limited impact on the White Sox postseason chances in 2020, Jim? It doesn't hurt um, just because I can see, you know, if bets is out and they don't replace him with any major league ready players or at least, you know, guys who uh, look like good bets to get over uh, rookie struggles and, you know, prices, uh, you know, limited and sales limited. And they're just lacking the, you know, high impact guys that they were banking on in the Dombrowski era kind of banked on uh, through its run. Uh, I can see the case where they drop down to low 80s uh, for win total, and then that uh, opens up that upper middle class of the American League to the White Sox. You know, um, you know, being a zero-sum thing where uh, somebody's got to move up, and the White Sox seem well positioned for that. But you know, when you look at the Rays and you look at uh, the AL West with the with the way the A's are always in it, and the Angels always look like they could be in it, kind of like the White Sox uh, this year. They're kind of in similar positions. Uh, it still looks like the path of least resistance is probably the AL Central, but um, I could see also that second wild card spot getting crowded too, because the Indians could be around there, and uh, you know, depending on how far the Red Sox fall, they'll be in the that that uh, 80 to 90 win mix. So maybe the second wild card spot. Uh, will drop down a little bit because the teams that didn't win before are winning more and the teams that were in that uh, mid to high 90 win total are kind of uh, falling back a bit on purpose. The White Sox have never won a wild card spot since the wild card has been introduced to Major League Baseball. They've The times they made the postseason, they've won the division. So if they ever do earn a wild card, it would be the first time in the team's history they've done so. And I would take it. Me too. So let's make it happen. Either the American League Central title or make it into the wild card. And it would greatly help if the Boston Red Sox do move Mookie Betts. Yes or no, Jim? Do you see Mookie Betts starting the season with the Boston Red Sox in 2020? I would say no, uh, just because it seems like there is uh, sustained uh, traction in the rumors. And then maybe it's the... Uh, having two divisional teams will make it stretch out a bit more uh, with with two NL West teams going for it. Maybe the Red Sox are able to play bids off each other a little bit more than they would with the uh, same uh, a market where you have a team in each league or something like that. But uh, it's uh, it, it seems like there's smoke to this. There's there's some heft to it uh, that uh, I, I didn't necessarily give it you know, early in the offseason, like with the Lindor, uh, yeah, Lindor trade rumors were more speculative. And I thought the bets things were along the same lines, but now that it's resurfaced in a way that the Lindor one hasn't, and given the Red Sox, other organizational turbulence, you know, maybe. And then, so I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm giving credibility. Again, we have some questions about Chris Bryant and of course, other topics and PO Sox coming after the break. Let's answer your guys's questions in PO Sox. When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. 
When your entire life is online, you need more than just speed from your internet. Xfinity gives you reliable in-home Wi-Fi coverage, plus protection from Wi-Fi network threats. Check out our amazing offers on Xfinity Internet. You'll get fast speed and Wi-Fi coverage you can count on. Plus, get advanced security free with the XFi Gateway, so you can keep the connected devices in your home protected from network threats. Just log in and activate through the Xfinity app. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Sox, where our Patreon supporters at patreon.com slash machine have asked the questions this week in the mailbag. We got a lot of questions from our supporters. And if you would like to ask P.O. Sox questions that we address on future episodes of the podcast, best way to do that is go to patreon.com slash machine to become a Patreon supporter today. And Jim, the first question that we have in our mailbag comes from Matthew. And Matthew's asking about right field. And his question is, if the White Sox don't go after an upgrade for right field next year in trade or free agency, do you think not signing Nicholas Castellanos was a missed opportunity? He seems to fit more into their traditional cost structure than the tier one right field free agency available next year, like Mookie Betts or George Springer. Well, I think with the rebuild and this whole, you know, wiping the payroll clean, I think the whole idea is to have the Sox feel welcome to uh, get out of their comfort zone, their, their, the cost structure they've been abiding by. Uh, that's been one of their things that's limited them the last uh, decade or so is uh, their unwillingness to break this mold. And it'd be one thing if they were a team like the Cardinals that never really had to break the bank and uh, you know, spent their money retaining their own players because they're so good at developing and finding players from elsewhere. But they haven't. They haven't really done well with uh, their mid-tier free agent signings and mid-tier acquisitions. And the only guys that they've gotten production from, and maybe it's been like you know at cost or maybe uh, below uh, uh, you know the the wins above replacement uh, per dollar valuation. But uh, you know the, the guys they've gotten production from are the guys they paid for. So I think the whole idea with wiping the payroll clean and having so few long-term salary obligations is to have the room to operate and sign somebody like Betts. And it kind of reminds me, and not to uh, see if I can dodge getting political here, but, you know, it kind of reminds me the um, the electability arguments, you know, the Democratic primary where people will say, like, I really support this candidate, but I'm not, a, I'm afraid my neighbor won't support this candidate. Uh, and so I'm thinking I'm going to go for the 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 guy I think my neighbor is supporting, and if that neighbor thinks the same way, then you know they don't end up supporting the cat. Yeah, then the candidate that might be the best uh, does not end up getting the support uh, that they should get, but just because people are afraid of what uh, you know the the greater population is going to do. And I guess if you <laughs> if you don't uh, you know try to affect that change yourself. Uh, then you know it doesn't really stand a chance of creating you know larger traction. So I think in this case, applying it to the White Sox, you know maybe you know Mookie Betts or George Springer is a pipe dream, but you know theoretically they they should be able to do it. I mean this off season while it feels momentous, uh, they're not even yet approaching the median. MLB payroll <laughs> and uh yeah it, it, you know Grandal and Keuchel and you know Mazzara and and Gonzalez and and Carnacion and Cishek like it ain't a good haul but 
you know, a lot of this offseason could have been crammed into other White Sox offseasons. It's just they don't because they've always limited themselves. And, uh, and we've seen it before with their Samarja offseason when they last time they won the winter is it wasn't good enough because they didn't actually acquire impact players. They acquired average to above average players that wasn't enough to uh, lift the, you know, the, the more flawed areas of the roster. So, uh, you know, this is the kind of offseason that, you know, you can basically have at any time you're willing to spend and have that many holes that need to be addressed by free agency. But I'm hoping uh, next year when they have fewer holes, like when the, I guess the roster needs are, are more targeted and less widespread and, you know, hoping that attendance raises up a little bit and creates revenue there and maybe a, a spike in uh, ratings at a time where the White Sox no longer share uh, NBC Sports Chicago with the Cubs and get a greater haul of the earnings, you know, for having their ownership stake, uh, you know, maybe that will allow them to spend even more and encourage them to spend uh, more, way more than they ever spent on the right guy. And when you look at the roster, yeah, assuming, you know, there's no injury or, or great fall off, you know, whether it's uh, age or uh, the Astros banging scheme with uh, Springer, that, uh, you know, those could be the right guys the White Sox are willing to add at the right moment. So that's why I don't want to, you know, as much as it's probably highly unlikely that they will, you know, be able to keep up with somebody like Betts or Springer uh, based on the situation and what they've done to get to this point and how st still how few long-term salary obligations they have. Uh, I think it's uh, incumbent on people in our position with platforms and, uh, you know, audiences and, uh, you know, White Sox do pay at least some attention to what we think and say uh, to encourage them to uh, to go uh, on that limb. And, and, and you know, because I don't think that limb is really I think calling it a limb is a little bit overstated based on the way their their salary is and, and their payroll is structured. So when the Pirates traded Starling Marte and it came out that their current payroll is about forty eight million dollars. And when I wrote about it for Sox Machine, I did some. I did some research on how much does every team get from the Fox and ESPN national contracts because they all teams, all 30 teams share that revenue. Doesn't matter. The Yankees and Red Sox play seven Sunday night ESPN games, which I'm sure they're going to in 2020. Uh, every team gets the same cut from those deals. So every team's getting $40 million a season, Jim. <laughs> the combined total from Fox and ESPN's national deals. So if you're the White Sox, take that 40 million and just give it to Mookie Betts for the next six seasons. <laughs> you know, uh, you're still going to, you're probably going to get more than that in the next national television deals between Fox and ESPN or whomever wants to step up and, and take on uh, those games. Uh, so even though the White Sox payroll is about $125 million coming into this season, just the national television deals, the White Sox are getting $40 million. So they just got to cover the other $85 million, which part of their their regional television deal with NBC Sports Chicago, I'm sure, is covering a large chunk of that. And then a smaller chunk is us, the fans that are going to the games. And they're still making a huge amount of profit. I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised if the White Sox payroll is still not 50% on the total team revenue the White Sox will make in 2020, Jim. So, yes, the White Sox definitely can still go after someone like Mookie Betts and George Springer next year. And trust us, we will be adding pressure next offseason in Dallas at the winter meetings on why 
Rick Hahn and Jerry Reinsdorf are not approaching those two if there is no rumored interest of the White Sox going after Mookie Betts at George Springer. They should still have plenty of money to do so. But Matthew, it is an excellent question. Thank you so much for asking it. Our next question is about possible bullpen arms, and it comes from Andrew Siegel. And Andrew's asking, Jim, out of Zach Birdie, Ian Hamilton, Tyler Johnson, or Matt Foster, are you confident in anyone's ability to be either a productive addition to the bullpen or maybe be attractive in a potential trade? I think the guys who would be attractive in a trade would be uh, the guys the White Sox would need the bullpen because they are short in strikeouts and you know injuries and, and, and attrition just over the course of a season requires the White Sox and other teams dip into their AAA reserves. So I think uh, all those guys or any of those guys who are good enough to be attractive to other teams would be attractive to the White Sox and would be a part of the mix. So I'm looking at more along the lines of that. And I think uh, I would probably rate them Tyler Johnson, Ian Hamilton, Zach Birdie, Matt Foster in that order. I like Johnson a lot. Um, and he looked fine when he was back from his uh, uh, lat strain. And just his problem was just not being able to crew all that many innings during the regular season. He had to go to the Arizona Fall League to get some extra work. And Hopefully he comes into spring training and is able to have a full productive spring training and uh, get back on track. Hamilton just had a, a terrible, uh, just, uh, you know, basically had a rain cloud over his head the entire time. He had the car accident spring training, had the foul ball hit him in the face in the dugout. It was a cursed season, and uh, I, I hope that he experiences nothing like it, but I just don't know. You know, it's a lot of, I guess... Uh, trauma in one season to come back from smoothly so I, I would set my expectations lower for him and just hope that he finds a groove over the course of the season Zach Birdie really don't know what his deal is um you know he's come back from knee surgery and hasn't got his velocity back I think he's topped out at he was sitting at 96 before uh which is better than the earlier reports but still not anywhere close to where they drafted him and uh Foster's last I maybe put Foster and Birdie on the same level right now Foster has the performance that Birdie doesn't have uh, the profile, I don't quite know if it's more than like a quadruple A profile. It's got a, he's got like a heavy fastball and he's got a decent slider, decent changeup, like a good three picks, uh, three pitch mix that, uh, allows him to, you know, give hitters a lot of different looks, but I don't know if any one pitch stands out enough to where you can get more than say like low leverage, uh, you know, kind of uh, sixth inning in games that aren't entirely out of hand type work from him. Uh, but then again, you know, given his low profile and, uh, he had the interruption to his career where he retired briefly and was always a bit older for the league coming back from that. Um, didn't necessarily give him all that much attention. So maybe, uh, you know, as he, you know, assuming he starts the season in Charlotte or maybe spring training appearances, uh, probably give him a closer look than I ever have just to see what's there and see what the White Sox see and, and why they protected him. But uh, for the time being, I, I wouldn't put that many expectations on him and uh, just kind of think he might be more of a product of, of succeeding in a very difficult environment uh, where, uh, you know, every pitcher, every other pitcher in Charlotte basically got slaughtered but him. So, uh, you know, some credit for that, but I don't quite know if there's any enough there for him to have sustainable major league success. Uh, but that's what spring training's for, and he's one of the guys I'll be looking at uh, because I have never looked at him in a way where I thought he was a potential White Sox roster solution, and now here's my opportunity. Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Doug, and Doug is asking about Chris Bryant, Jim. Do you think the White Sox could trade for Chris Bryant? Put him in right field for two years? It's a, it would be a huge cost for two years, but it could put the White Sox over the top. 
I like the player and the fit and the potential impact. I think the the reasons I don't like it is one, um, the, you know, the White Sox would probably have to trade somebody like Nick Madrigal or Andrew Vaughn. I don't think Roberts uh, or, or Kopecker are touchable, but I think, you know, maybe Madrigal lacks the high-end impact to really make the White Sox regret trading him the way the Cubs might regret trading Eloy Jimenez. And Vaughn, you know, he doesn't have a clean path to the roster right now, even though thinking about a roster spot for him is probably... Uh, at least uh, one year away, maybe two, depending on what kind of season he has. But uh, the White Sox would be hard-pressed to add to that deal. So I think uh, you know, if the Cubs are looking for a max package, I, I think the uh, there are other teams that can put together something more compelling than the White Sox, at least after the the top player involved. Also, I think uh, when you look at Bryant, and, and he's making $18 million, his third arbitration year, has one more year to go. He might be 25, 26 million if he has a good season and, and maxes out his value in his fourth year. And at that point, the savings you would have having somebody like him versus a Mookie Betts type or George Springer type is, uh, you know, it's considerable still. It might be something like 10 million, um, but uh, it's still not enough to really make Bryant a value versus acquiring a guy who only costs money. So I just don't think that. Uh, the shot of of what Bryant adds to the White Sox in this season, um, I don't know if it's worth selling the the highest end of the farm, and that would yeah I guess dive into the part of the farm system the White Sox need to sustain a winner that a guy like Bryant would be pushing them towards. I think uh, that'd be kind of robbing Peter to pay Paul a bit at that point, and I'd rather see the White Sox wait a year and go go full bore at a guy who costs only money, and you know maybe at that point too some outfielders bounce back and the White Sox have a little bit more to deal and they can uh, deal from depth more next year and, and uh, acquire impact player who doesn't cost them an impact player they might need immediately. And that's a great point, Jim. I just don't think it's a good trade partnership between the White Sox and Cubs or Chris Bryant because the White Sox are lacking in prospect currency. Like they are counting on Nick Magical and Andrew Vaughn to a certain extent to be part of their new core in their window of contention. So it's the guys that rank fifth through tenth that are that could be reasonably expected to move in any type of trade. And right now, that as we just talked to Nick and Colin, prospects number five through ten are just not that attractive to other teams right now because they just don't have as high enough talent that you would want in a return uh, for anyone that could provide impact. Like for example, with Arizona making their offer to Pittsburgh for Starlin Marte, the White Sox would still have a tough time trying to beat out what Arizona offered based on what other prospect writers and analysts and scouts think of the Arizona farm system compared to the White Sox farm system, especially for prospects five through 10, uh, that the White Sox would have had a tough time beating Arizona to get Starling Marte. So that's why this upcoming season for down on the farm is critical for these guys to a stay healthy and b perform to the level that was expected of them Back in, let's say, even 2017 when expectations were set for some of these prospects. Because uh, if they can do that, then Rickon has more prospect currency to pull off more impactful trades. If they can't, then the White Sox are going to have to wait into the offseason and spend some cash. Because they just don't have the prospects right now that are attractive for other teams to make these type of uh, impactful moves. Now, back to Chris Bryant. And I think Chris Bryant is on the same lines as Mookie Betts. Uh, that why are the Cubs even thinking about trading Chris Bryant? They still have a very good roster. They could still make the postseason 
with Chris Bryant. But again, just like the Red Sox, there's concern with the Ricketts family uh, that owns the Cubs and, and luxury tax. I asked you about Mookie Betts, yes or no, if he's going to be with the Boston at opening day, and you said no, Jim. How do you feel about Chris Bryant and the Cubs? Do you think Chris Bryant is wearing a Cubs uniform on opening day? I guess I would also lean no just because it's getting to the point where it'd be a bit awkward to see him on the roster. I mean, <laughs> it wouldn't it wouldn't be – I don't think that would prohibit the Cubs from bringing him back. They wouldn't trade him just to trade him if they really get nothing uh, back uh, that that's anywhere close to what he's worth to a team that could make the playoffs, but – um, just seems like there's enough persistent smoke and, and been there all year and is more or less uh, waiting for the decision from the arbitrator over whether he'd have one year of team control remaining or two. And now that he has two, it's, you know, it raises the trade uh, profile a little bit. But yeah, it's it's another team like along the lines of Lindor and uh, yeah, and Betts were just like, what are you doing? Like, why are you just, well, yeah, I guess, why are teams so cavalier with... Uh, the shot at making a postseason, I think it's something you might ignore when you've made it to the postseason multiple times in a row, like the Indians have and, and the Cubs did and the uh, and the Red Sox did. But when it comes to <laughs> a team on the outside looking in, those look so valuable that I don't know why you give them away. And it's also a good reminder of why I don't get too wrapped up in the sixth and seventh years of team control because uh, I imagine when the Cubs were manipulating Bryant's service time and waiting for that seventh year and they're having that argument between fans and over whether they should call him up opening day versus wait. It's like, I didn't, I imagine they didn't think in the sixth and seventh years that they would be talking about trading Chris Bryant. I think they would be talking about, you know, supplementing uh roster and, and having him around for, you know, one more year than necessary and being able to extend this window. Now they're talking about closing a window or at least, uh, trying to step back to take two steps forward. Everyone kind of euphemism you want to put on it, but it's uh, not anywhere close to what they thought they were signing up for when they were arguing over team control. So that's why I'm not really all that wrapped up in worrying what happens six years from now, because if you don't take advantage of what happens in those six years, the seventh year is more or less, uh, you know, I guess, meaningless. And uh, especially if you have super two salaries involved, that uh, the savings aren't that great either. Exactly. Yeah, Chris Bryan, this whole situation, even though he lost the grievance, this is going to be front and center, front and center between the Players Association and the league on years of control for these players and when they become free agents. Because if you're playing service time manipulation games, preventing players from accruing a full season and when it comes to that later part in the arbitration that you're trading them away, maybe teams should only have five years of control of certain players when they reach the majors instead of six or seven, because you're not keeping these guys to the end of the window that you try to give yourself by manipulating their service time early on. So I'm, I'm 100% with you, Jim. And, this situation is very interesting. I also lean towards no. I think it's the Atlanta Braves that will be making the deal, adding Chris Bryant. And uh, I don't see an American League team getting Chris Bryant, maybe Texas, but I think Atlanta's got the best prospects, the best farm system to make a deal with the Chicago Cubs. And I'm sure the Cubs can still get a lot in return for Chris Bryant as far as to help him with prospects and it'll help him later on. But this whole window that they have built to help win the 2016 World Series does feel like it's closing. And it's just not the players on the field. 
I'm also speculating, Jim, if Theo Epstein is not going to be around in a couple of seasons. And after his contract expires after the 2021 season, he's also done too. Yeah, seems like he's ready for something else. Right. So, yeah, that's what's going on in Chicago Cubs land. And that was a bulk of conversation going on Chicago Sports Radio. But, Doug, thank you so much for your question. It's just unfortunately the White Sox are not in a position to take advantage of this opportunity that the Cubs are presenting to all of Major League Baseball at the moment. Our next set of questions are for our Patreon supporters only. And as always, guys, thank you so much for your support. Our first Patreon question comes from Derek. And Derek is asking, I've heard talk of James McCann being Lucas Giolito's personal catcher. Do you think he will be? If so, assuming Lucas Giolito starts on opening day, are the White Sox really going to open the season without one of Yasmane Grandal or Edwin Encarnacion in the lineup? Yeah, I tend not to like the idea of personal catchers, um, especially when, you know, I guess before it's proven to be especially beneficial, like I'm thinking with like Carlos Rodon and Omar Narvaez, like Rodon really enjoyed working with Narvaez, maybe more so than Wellington Castillo and other catchers, but Narvaez also cost him a lot of strikes and uh, made it harder for Rodon to do his job. So I don't know if that partnership was all that beneficial, even though there was some some comfort in terms of just, I guess, maybe preparation or pregame stuff. It didn't really show up in the results. So I would like to see the White Sox avoid it. I guess the uh, couple things are in this case that one is that McCann's strengths, or at least, uh, I guess, least glaring weaknesses behind the plate when it comes to framing. He's terrible at catching low strikes. He's okay at catching high strikes and maybe a little bit better than Yasmani Grandal in certain areas, according to StatCast framing data. And given that Giolito works in the upper parts of the strike zone, and that's kind of where he he lives, you know, McCann's not a bad guy to pair with him. Uh, also, in the case of opening day, if they're playing Kansas City, and if Kansas City's rotation is fully healthy, I imagine Danny Duffy is starting. He's a lefty. And you're going to see McCann play against uh, lefties, and he did very well against them last year, and it makes sense to play him generally in that uh, you know in that spot in those games. That uh, it would be a reasonable start, so... Uh, the, the, the tough thing, like you mentioned, is having Grandal out of the opening day lineup. I think you know, maybe you see him at DH, maybe at Encarnacion is not the fixture that Grandal is going to be, um, going, you know, into this season and, and as part of this, uh, uh, this run towards contending. Um, but it, w- it would be a little bit unusual to have the opening day fanfare and the introductions and not see Grandal play. So I guess this will be a test early on in terms of just how uh, married they are uh, Giolito uh, with McCann every single start. I'm hoping that's not the case um, just because uh, it makes sense to have Grand. I, I think given Grandall's strengths and uh, his uh, you know, uh, just his overall ability to catch basically any pitcher and, and add value to any pitcher that uh, you don't want to see him kept away from any starter just because one guy had a good guy with the guy behind the plate last year. Um, but uh, I, I guess if we see Grandall play opening day, even with a guy like Duffy in the mound, that does mean that uh, there is no personal catcher. If McCann does start with Giolito there, I would maybe think that uh, that pairing is going to be the way the White Sox go. But I would like to see them avoid it just because I think you can save McCann's uh, production drops off to where it was during his Detroit days. And the framing numbers at the top of the zone aren't special anymore either. Then the White Sox have kind of painted themselves in the corner where they're almost uh, maybe psychologically, if they go away from McCann, you know, midway into the season, they start uh, inviting discussion that might not have been there if they just started a Grandall opening day and let the 
pairings with catchers play themselves out naturally based on who needs rest and who's pitching for the other team. Derek, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Azenrek. And Azenrek is asking, even though he never played for the White Sox, should native Chicago and Curtis Granderson have a role with the organization? Uh, I would not be opposed. Um, you know, he's, he's has, uh, you know, deep Chicago roots and his uh, name is on the stadium at, uh, UIC, that beautiful, uh, stadium with the, uh, city, uh, with the cityscape as the backdrop in center field. Um, really the ideal backdrop for any Chicago stadium and UIC is the one that got it, but he's, he's been a presence around the city and he's always been rumored to be a White Sox acquisition in large part because of that. Um, so, you know, it's not, yeah, I guess the White Sox have made it such that, uh, anytime they seek out a player who wasn't part of the White Sox in a post-career role. It always strikes me as odd and uh, unnatural, but, you know, there are some natural ties there. And I've always enjoyed his presence. He was one of the first blog-friendly players, I remember, back you know, last decade um, that would, you know, gladly talk to uh, media that were not traditional media members and uh, very uh, genial presence and thoughtful one and... Uh, uh, I think as, you know, we see what Granderson does post-career, like if he returns to Chicago and is part of, uh, you know, community projects and, uh, you know, has his own thing going on, it would make sense for him and the White Sox to overlap. And, uh, you know, whether it's part of him, you know, some initiatives where they team up with him or maybe they bring him in to be like a third voice in the broadcast booth from time to time, like the, the A's did with Eric Chavez and, uh, I really enjoyed you know, seeing him kind of drop in. And even though he wasn't a, a great polished broadcaster, he was able to provide some insight that uh, like a modern day ball player would have on the competition that Steve Stone wouldn't. Um, wouldn't, you know, wouldn't mind seeing him drop in from time to time, but I guess it depends where he goes and uh, what he's interested in. But there do seem to be some mutual, mutually aligned interests if uh, Granderson's post-career is anything like his playing career was. Well, Azenrek, thank you so much for your question, and what a great career Curtis Granderson had, both on and off the field. And I'm excited to see what he does. I'm sure he's going to be working either on a national broadcast or to watch him on TV, or another team will have him in the front office uh, as somebody that helps with community outreach or even with baseball operations. He's got a, a bright future still ahead of him after his very successful career. Uh, in Major League Baseball. He was one of the best fantasy baseball players you could have from like 2006 to 2012. Uh, just ridiculous as far as the power and speed combination that he had. So yeah, I thought he had some like crazy lines with extra base hits, like doubles, triples, and homers. I'm going to look that up real quick. In, in 2011, he had more than 40 home runs and 10 triples with the New York Yankees and 25 stolen bases. Yeah, there's also 2007 with the Tigers, 38 doubles, 23 triples, 23 homers. Again, he was awesome for fantasy baseball from 2006 to 2012. Just just absolutely awesome. So great career to Curtis Granderson, and congratulations. Our last question is about food. And Pointer Babe is asking, I'm sure they'll be trying out the new ballpark food items very soon. It sounds like a week before opening day in March. Is there anything not yet available that you'd like to see served at the ballpark? I'd like to thank Pointer Babe for this question because she allows me to uh, once again uh, stump for a good iced coffee at the ballpark. <laughs> That's all I want. That's my summer drink. Um, I like a beer at a ballpark, maybe two, but after two, I start yawning, which I don't like doing at the ballpark. So, uh, you know, I would like caffeine that's not soda so there you go 
Ice coffee. Ice coffee. That's a good one because you don't see it right now at the ballpark. Uh, for food, I'm going to go with the breaded steak sandwich because they pretty much have all the other Chicago staples. But the breaded steak sandwich, they do not have. And with Rico hmm. Benny's just down the street, not saying it needs to be Rico Benny's, but if they had their version of a breaded steak sandwich, I think that would be a hit. Yeah. Uh, I think that might be, that sounds like more of a club level food. Probably. Or in center field at the Beggar's Pizza little bar, because they have the chicken Parmesan sandwich, which is really good, uh, in center field at the Beggar's Pizza bar. Uh, hmm. They serve it in garlic bread, which is... A very, I didn't realize they had a chicken parm sandwich. Yeah, it's really good. It's hmm. really, really good. It's probably my top five food item, for sure. I tend to get interrupted by the Cuban stand before I get there. See that, and that's the problem. Yeah, it depends on how <laughs> where you enter in the stadium, right? Because I usually enter in gate two, so by the the bar, the oh my gosh, the the craft, craft cave. cave yep. So we usually stop there, and then we climb up the ramp, and then you do have like the Comcast sandwich area, which the sandwiches are good, but I then that's how I make it to center field, and before I hit. The Cuban stand, I hit Beggar's Pizza, and then I remind myself, oh, yeah, the chicken parm sandwich, and I get that instead of the Cuban now. Yeah, I, I'm gonna probably going to seek that out next time I'm there. But if I entered in, like, gates four or five, then I'm getting the Cuban because I hit that first. Yeah, I usually come in, <laughs> in gate four. And uh, they had the Cuban stand actually at SoxFest. Yeah, it's good. It's it's the best food when it comes to eating while walking. It is. It is. Those press sandwiches... And the Cabano is really good. I, I really enjoy the Cabano. But yeah, next time you go, you have to see the chicken parm sandwich. But if, if Beggar's Pizza can do that, then just do a breaded steak sandwich. And then you can either or the breaded chicken or the breaded steak. Half and half. Ooh, <laughs> there you go. That might be awful. I'm not sure. That probably would be awful. Uh, I'm not sure how chicken and steak work Marinara, together. Marinara, yeah, garlic. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I would try it. I would try it. But it'd be interesting to see on what food items they're going to have available this upcoming season. They they try to be very trendy uh, to see you know what other food trends are. But they already had a fried chicken sandwich. And thanks to Popeyes, obviously fried chicken sandwiches are very popular right now. You know what else is popular? Iced coffee. Iced coffee. There you go. Cold brew. Cold brew. So there you go, Pointer Babe. If the White Sox offer iced coffee and a breaded steak sandwich, uh, they got us covered. They got so many food options right now that they cover a lot of areas. But... I think, you know what, I agree with you, Jim. Those those are two good areas, the iced coffee and the braided steak sandwich. But Pointer Babe, thank you so much. And now I want a chicken parm sandwich. <laughs> now Jim wants a chicken parm sandwich. Uh, Pointer Babe, thank you so much for asking your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week in P.O. Socks. Again, if you would like to submit questions, whether to us for P.O. Socks or to our guests, go to patreon.com slash socks machine to sign up today to help support the site and the show. And our Patreon supporters get an ad free version of the show and also the extra content every single week with additional P.O. Sox questions answered, and for and for Nick and Colin ask, uh, answering those P- Patreon questions this week, uh, that's a special version that everyone is getting, no matter if you're getting the free edition of the podcast or the Patreon edition of the podcast. So for those that are listening to the free version right now, 
if you enjoyed those questions being asked to the guests from the fans and you want to be partake in that, again, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up today and you'll get that opportunity as we'll post the question, uh, the opportunity for you to ask questions on patreon.com before we interview those guests and you can submit your questions and we'll ask them. And if I may interject too, uh, with, uh, added content, uh, this week is prospect week at Sox machine and it'll, uh, wrap up on Friday with my top white Sox prospect list, which I put behind, uh, the Patreon wall. So that's another reason to sign up. I've always, not that my prospect rankings are, I would say, um, Oh, I'll say they're special. <laughs> I bring my own, uh, uh, yeah, my my perspective on it. But just like, uh, you know, why would I make people pay for it? Just because I've always made people pay for it. Before I put it on uh, Sox Machine, it was in my White Sox Outsider book. So I've never given away for free. So why start now? There you go. And then my draft stuff is coming up as college baseball starts on Valentine's Day, Friday, fe- uh, February 14th. So if you're interested in the 2020 Major League Baseball draft, which is going to be one of the strongest We've seen in recent years, perhaps the strongest, the 2011 Major League Baseball draft. You could also read that on SoxMachine.com for our Patreon supporters. Uh, so if you enjoy prospect coverage and draft coverage and the extra stuff we do on the podcast and the extra stuff that we do in Ryan's and SoxMachine.com, again, go to Patreon.com slash SoxMachine to sign up today. And that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Again, big thanks to Colin Whitchurch and Nick Schaefer from Baseball Perspectives for being on the show to talk about the White Sox prospects and give their thoughts with the Baseball Perspectives Top 101 and where the White Sox prospects rank within that 101 list. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe in a number of ways. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and Audioboom.com slash Sox Machine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. How much do you know about petroleum? Did you know it's used to make thousands of products we rely on every day? Petroleum is in our aspirin, contact lenses, and cell phones. It's in the detergent we use to clean our clothes. It's also used to make footballs, crayons, sunscreen, and clothing. Even the syringes delivering life-saving vaccines are made using petroleum. And at Energy Transfer, we know how important petroleum is. That's why we transport it safely every day. Learn more at energytransfer.com. Nobody builds 5G. Like Verizon builds 5G. Because we're the engineers who built the most reliable network in America. And the more you do with 5G, the more building it right matters. The more your network matters. The more Verizon engineers going the extra mile matters. It's us pushing us. It's Verizon versus Verizon. 5G built right from America's most reliable network. Most reliable based on rankings from RootMetrics second half 2020 U.S. report of three mobile networks. Results may vary. Award is not an endorsement.